Welcome. You are listening to the Fat and Furious podcast. In this podcast series, your host, Steve Bennett, father of seven, best-selling author and adventurer, will be joined by 23 of the world's most forward-thinking medical professionals, doctors, authors, and top nutritionists, where he'll share the truth behind living healthier and happier for longer. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Professor Tim Noakes. Tim is a South African scientist and was a professor in the Division of Exercise Science and Sports Medicine at the University of Cape Town. He is a proclaimed author. Amongst his bestsellers are The Real Meal Revolution, The Law of Running, and another book called The Law of Nutrition. In 2012, he received the Lifetime Achievement Award from South Africa's National Research Foundation for his contribution to sports science and research. His most recent book, Real Food on Trial, tells the true story of his four-year-long court battle in South Africa, where the establishment tried to science his dietary opinions. Tim was victorious. He is ranked on Twitter as the fourth most influential scientist across the globe. Tim, great to speak to you. It's been a lifelong ambition of mine to meet you. You're some bit, I call you like the rock star of our world, but uh, <laughs> um, but also I know what you, is it true that you were involved with the rugby in South Africa a few years back? Yes, I was involved in the 2004-2007 campaign when we won the Rugby World Cup. Oh. And my contribution was that I was called in. Jake White was the main coach at that time, and I was his medical director. I helped set the team up. And the key that I said to him in 2004 was, Jake, on the day of the final, you must have your best 30, 23 players. It was 22 in those days. Must be on the field on the day. Not 21, but 22. And I said, how are we going to do that? And then I said, this is the way we'll do it. And we managed the team's how much training they did and how many matches they played because traditionally South African teams are overplayed mm-hmm. and we held back players. We didn't come, a lot of our players didn't come to the end of the year tour in 2006 and that almost caused a furor in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Then as part of the Super 14, I think it was a Super 12 then, we didn't send our best team to play Australia and New Zealand in Australia and New Zealand. Wow. Uh, that was about eight weeks before the World Cup. And the team peaked on the day, and they were just unbelievable. Well, well done, you. And, of course, you beat us in the final uh, <laughs> not so long back. So uh, let's move on to... Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, I've already done a, an introduction, giving a background about yourself and your amazing books and your history. So let's dive straight in, if we can, Tim. Tell us a bit about your two-year, two-year-long hearing where people weren't quite happy about you promoting the message that we all promote today about low carbs and, and, and take as long as you like because it's the most fascinating story. Steve, it was actually four years, four and a half years. Would you believe wow. it? Wow. So I got onto Twitter in 2012 because of Lewis Pugh and he was another of my great achievements. I helped him swim at the North Pole and then he swam the, the whole, the breadth of the English Channel from the one end to the other, from from east, from west to east. Oh, well, um, not just across, but the length of it. The length wow. of it. He did that last year. 
And he's become something of an icon in environmental work. So he said to me, Tim, you need to be on Twitter to get your message out. So I joined in 2012 and was going along fine until 2014, January, February 2014. A lady asked a question. She said, should babies and mothers, when they wean, what should they be eating? And I basically responded. She asked another question. But the key was she said babies and mothers. And I said that you should wean onto the low-carb diet. And within 12 hours, I'd been reported to the Health Professions Council of South Africa for disgraceful conduct. And then began a long process because what I said was absolutely compatible with the World Health Organization and the South African Dietary Guidelines. But the goal was to, to shut me up. That was all the story. Mm -hmm. Because I'm quite a well-known South African scientist, I was now promoting the low-carbohydrate diet, and we'd written this book called The Real Meal Revolution, and too many people were listening to the story and were dropping their diets, and they were changing from the conventional high-carbohydrate diet to the low-carbohydrate diet. And they were going to the dietitians, and they were saying, you know, I've lost 20 kilograms on Noakes' diet. What do you say to it? <gasps> it's dangerous. You're going to drop dead of a heart attack tomorrow. So then they'd say, but I'm reversing my diabetes. Surely that's good. No, 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 no. It's going to kill you. And the reality was that the dietitians weren't going to change, and they were going to try and protect it. So it turns out that the, the head of the Dietitians Association in South Africa colluded, colluded actively no. with the Health Professional Council to charge me. Wow. So when she wrote the letter, um, I then responded, and the, the, the committee for the health professional council couldn't decide whether to charge me or not. So what they did was they went out and got information, and they never told me what that information was. And then they charged me without allowing me to defend myself properly before, before deciding to charge me. So I was charged unethically against the Constitution of South Africa. And when I w realized I was up against it, I decided, okay, we're going to go with everything we've got. And I said, I don't care how long it takes. And I was so fortunate because two of the leading lawyers in South Africa, Dr. Rocky, Dr. Dr. Rocky Ramdas, who is a former general practitioner, who's now become a lawyer, who's a great friend, we're brothers in arms, and we had a fantastic time. I swear I'd go through it again just to be with him. So Rocky was amazing. And then Mike van der Nest, who is a senior counsel, he phoned me one day and he said, Tim, I'd like to defend you because this is about academic freedom and your constitutional right to free speech. And he's a, he's a constitutional lawyer. So with those two on board, there, no one was going to beat us. <laughs> and what Mike said to me, he said, Tim, all I want you to do is present the science. I said, he said, I don't care how long it takes, you present the science. So essentially, so the trial then began, and I, it took about a year before I got onto the, we, we'd been in court for 12 or 14 days before I got onto the stand. I was on the stand for nine days, which included three and a half days of cross-examination. And my video testimony, you can get it on, on the YouTube if you go to my Twitter account, you'll see it's the pinned tweet, and there's access to 83 videos of the evidence I gave. Let me just so, give everybody straight out your, um, your handle on Twitter 
Uh, it's at Prof Tim Noakes. That's that's the one, yeah. That's correct. Thanks, Steve. Cool. So, and that was by chance that we actually filmed it. A friend along came along literally the night before I was about to to start my test when he said, "Can I film it?" And I said, "Sure, but I can't pay you anything." So he said, "Fine, I'll do it." So we we got that done. And uh, so anyway, it went on, and then we had three of the people I'm sure you will have on your on your talks. We had Nina Teichel. She came out from, from New York and gave a day's testimony and was just unbelievable. She was so good that their lawyer, the prosecution lawyer, he couldn't cross-examine her, not one question. <laughs> the only question he asked her was, how long are you staying in South Africa? And so she said, well, I'm leaving tomorrow or something. So he said, well, I hope you enjoy your stay. <laughs> and that was it. And yeah, then Zoe Harcom. Nina is fantastic. Yeah. Isn't? Yeah. And then Zoe, Zoe Harcom was there, and she was, she's extraordinary. There are two extraordinary people, and, and Zoe just laid into them. <laughs> and, you know, in the end, the, the prosecution produced one scientific paper, one, and we had 6,000 pages of scientific information. Wow. And then Carl Karen okay, well, Zinn. Can, can I just quickly stop you there? That's 6,000 pages of scientific information backing up that low-carb isn't unhealthy or is beneficial. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, they're absolutely correct, and the and the evidence that the that there's no evidence supporting the low fat diet, mm -hmm. and that's what Nina and Zoe focused on. And isn't this quite, isn't this quite important, Tim, in the sense that, it, from your point of view, sadly, it was you that was on trial, but really, what was on trial was a hypothesis that you know eating. Uh, a, a low-fat diet doesn't prevent heart disease, doesn't prevent uh, you know, high cholesterol, and, uh, and a high-fat diet isn't bad for you. That was on trial, I guess, really, as well as yourself. Yeah. That's absolutely right, and that's what we decided to make it. And you see, the, the prosecution was so stupid because in the end, there was a really funny afternoon where they had to fill in time because they were trying to search for additional uh, additional witnesses because they'd made such a mess up and they'd not made their case that they knew they had to prolong it to get another witness along. And we, during the process, it turns out that they said that we've got a document here about Noakes or something. So Mike van der jumped on it and said, well, where are those documents? And there they were in a file and we called that the dodgy dossier. <laughs> and the dodgy dossier was everything they had on me and what they'd done to try to prosecute me. And in that, we found stuff that was a very, very r revealing about what had been going on. Wow. And so that was, that was very helpful to, to our cause. Who, who, who do you think was the... So now I'm, where have we got... Oh, sorry. The point I was making was there were the notes of the prosecution lawyer. And they said, we must make this about ethics and nothing to do with nutrition. Wow. And what they did was they called in nutrition specialists as the prosecution witnesses. And they didn't even call in an ethicist. And then they had to call, find this ethicist, who was a complete disaster. So they didn't really know what they were doing. So you're quite right. Yeah. Once they charged us with unconventional advice, we were home and dry because then we knew we could present all this information. And repeatedly during the trial, the prosecution would say, are we going to have to listen to another lecture today? See, another, <laughs> another lecture from Dr. Noakes. Yeah. And the, the lady who was in charge of the trial said, yes, you accused him of giving unconventional advice. 
you can't stop him giving the evidence that it's not unconventional. Wow. So, so eventually, after 28 days in court, well, it was 25 days in court, and then I got the first ruling, and I was innocent on 10 charges. There were 10 rulings. I won every single one. The, H, the Health Professionals Council went away and decided to appeal it, and that took another year, and then there were another three decisions. I won all those three decisions as well. So basically, they said that, uh, that I had not acted unprofessionally. I had not given unconventional advice. I'd never been in a doctor-patient relationship with the, with the lady who'd asked the question, which was quite important, and that, and that the advice was not unconventional and it was safe. And therefore, I was innocent of all charges. <laughs> well, thank goodness you were for your own sake and also for the sake of the whole population of the planet because sadly in the UK and in America, our governments are still giving out. We have the Eat Well plate. In America, they still have the pyramid, which is fundamentally flawed. So thank goodness that, that you won that case. Otherwise, big corporate, big pharmaceutical would be winning all over again. Yeah, no, precisely. You know, the, the reason I defended it not, was not only for the low-carb story, but because my whole integrity as a scientist had been destroyed. I'd, I must tell you that my own university threw me to the wolves and wow. were part, they were one of the key drivers of the whole process, despite the fact that I'd worked at the university for 40 years and brought great credit to the university. And it was, it was unbelievable that they mobbed me. And that, that was part of the, which, which I will never forgive them for. Why, why, do think, why, why do you think that happened to you? I mean, I, I've done lots of research about your credentials. You have some of the best credentials on the planet as a scientist. You, uh, I just read recently you're the fourth most influential scientist across the globe, according to Twitter. So, hey, uh, you know, you've got this track record. And also the fact that, you know, you've been an athlete your entire life. So for you to turn the corner on sort of carbohydrates after being a, an endurance athlete for so, so long, I've lost count of how many marathons you've run, um, to say, actually, I'm doing a U-turn on what I believe, which, by the way, my understanding is that's what scientists are supposed to do, not get <laughs> wedded to an, a, a hypothesis. It's just, well, why do you think the university turned on you? Well, uh, you know, I don't want to go into conspiracy theories, but universities are controlled by their funders. I mean, that's the fundamental thing. That'll do. <laughs> That'll do. <laughs> that's a great answer. I've heard that before. <laughs> right. Let's get on then to, so I think we've established for, for our listeners and our viewers, uh, the Professor Tim Noakes really cares about nutrition and people and he's prepared to stand up for what is right and what is wrong. Um, in your uh, recent book, um, The Real Meal Revolution, you talk a lot about evolution and about food that we ate as we were evolving. Uh, my first book was called Primal Cure, uh, all about saying, you know, we must realign our bodies, our diet, our exercise to that that the body evolved into. Uh, but, but give me your take on evolution, uh, food, the whole thing, as long as you want. Well, you know, I was really lucky, Steve, that my parents came from Liverpool, just by the way, and they, after the Second World War, we moved to Zimbabwe and lived in Harare for five or six years. And our next-door neighbor, you won't believe, was the person who encouraged Broom and Dart to go and look at Sturkfontein. He lived on a farm very close to Sturkfontein, 
And Sterkfontein was where the second great finding on, Af on the African continent occurred. Australopithecus africanus, Mrs. Plez was found there. And he became a great friend of my father. And through his discussions, he introduced me to anthropology. And I'd, I had a fascination from it from, a, from quite a young age. And then because South Africa has such a long history in, in, in discovering the origins of humans, it's always been something that's been close to my heart. So it was natural that when I, oh, sorry, and the other point is, of course, then I got interested in running. And running is a kind of primal activity that was probably one of the reasons why we became such good hunters. And I'm a, my physiology interest was in heat stroke and heat regulation. And then came along the story that it, it started in, in about 1980s that humans outran their animals, and that's how we killed them. We ran them to the exhaustion. The interesting thing about that story was where it arose from. There was a scientist in, in, in uh, I'm thinking of the state, uh, in the United States, uh, Nevada, not Nevada, sorry, the, I'll get it, it's, I'm blocking at the moment, who would run with his dog in the, in the summer and in the winter, and the winter the dog would always outrun him, and in the summer it, he would outrun the dog. It was Salt Lake City. And he said, how come I can outrun the dog in, this, in the summer? Humans must be adapted for heat. And he developed a hypothesis that we learned to run and to chase animals to their exhaustion. It was completely, he was destroyed. It destroyed his career. They said, you absolute rubbish. And then 20 years later, the, the, the idea came again and it was accepted as being true. So Daniel Lieberman was the one who rediscovered the theory to 20, 2000, sorry, 20 years later. So that was quite exciting. So then I, in another book I wrote called Waterlogged, which, which, is, which is another famous book, which, which comes from other issues that I studied. And, and waterlogged, to, to research waterlogged, I just had to work out why humans were such good runners in the heat. And this was all part of it. So, so that was also the part of how we evolved as hunters in the heat mm -hmm. and had all these other adaptations. Absolutely fa fascinating. So do, do you take it that the diet that we should have today and evolution is a slow process, therefore, what we should be eating, we've got to look back a, a long way to maybe uh, sort of distant ancestors and, and, and focus on what they were eating? Yeah, I think so. And, and so I'm from the north of England, as I've indicated to you. And I mean, the north of England was under ice a few, not so long ago. So who would, what would people eating then? They were eating sheep and, and, and meat and other stuff, but they weren't eating vegetables and fruits and cereals and grains. And so I've tailored my diet progressively more just to meat and fish and dairy and nuts and uh, dairy and nuts and eggs. And that's essentially what I eat. And, and the closer I've come to that diet, the healthier I've got. So to me, I think it's easier if you're from the north of England or from England. <laughs> I think when you come from the grain bearing countries from, I've met a lot of people, I've met some Iranians who probably that's where the wheat started and, and they very happy to eat lots of wheat and it seems to me they perhaps they are more adapted because they were the, the first populations to eat wheat and they've been exposed for 18,000 years and if you the key point is that if you weren't able to eat wheat in those days you would have died yeah so that they must be more selective but if the wheat only came along by two 
2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago, then you've had much less time for the selection process to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And people forget that, you know, your, your parents from Liverpool and we go back 100 years ago, no, we weren't importing fruit and veg. You couldn't, you know, the ships weren't refrigerated. So even a couple of hundred years ago, the only time we were eating fruit and veg was probably from, I don't know, uh, August to probably October or November. And the rest of the year, because we hadn't got refrigerators, it was pretty much, you know, just the, the animal produce and the eggs and, uh, and, yeah. and the fish, yeah. No, absolutely. And, and so I, I always tell people to look back to what their great, 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 great grandparents were eating or further back than that. But, you know, if you look at the British diet, the, the British were the healthiest in the mid-Victorian era between 1840 and 1880. That's when they were the tallest and the healthiest. And their life expectancy was also very good. In fact, the long-lived people then lived just as long as we do today. And then British Britain started in the industrial diet, the health went downhill. So that by the time of the Boer War, which happened at the turn of the, 18, of the 19th, 20th century, the, the British couldn't find enough big soldiers to come out here and fight. In, they had to change their, their, their rulings about who they could take. And that's how quickly it happens. It took, it took one generation for that to happen. And then it only accelerated more recently. Yeah, isn't that fascinating that in, in history ancestral history, we see changes in height very quickly based on diet. Like yeah. the Maasai, people move out of the Maasai areas to, uh, to areas in America uh, where they've changed their diet quickly. Height seems to change up and down quite quickly. In fact, I live in a whole old house and I'm really sure I think I'm about yeah. five or eight, but I, I have to bend down to go in the door because back then yeah. everybody was short. And you can track history on height and it goes up and down quite a lot. Yeah. And the rest of our body, when it comes to evolution and the way we digest food, seems to take much, much longer uh, to, to, to change. Any, any thoughts why that might be? Or? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, if you look at humans, it's very clear we are carnivorous. And if anyone who tells you it isn't, the, the biology of humans is so clear that we have a very acidic stomach, we have a, a longer small bowel, and a tiny, tiny, tiny short small bowel, uh, sorry, large bowel, a very short large bowel compared to gorillas. And we don't have the bacteria to digest uh, uh, starchy foods. We just don't have them. But when I, by that, I mean the, the resistant starches, the cellulose. That's all done by bacteria, anaerobic bacteria. And the big gut of the chimpanzee and the gorilla is because they contain, for they're full of these digestive bacteria that are changing the cellulose into saturated fatty acids. And I mean, that's the irony of it all, that your cows and your sheep and the other ruminants are converting grass, which is a carbohydrate, into saturated fats. Why would they do that if it's going to kill us? Yeah. And so that's, that, that's the issue. We are absolutely adapted for meat consumption and not for, for vegetables and grains. And I, it frightens me, this push towards eating more vegetables. You simply can't get the nutrition. With, if you were eating purely vegetables, which hadn't been processed and you weren't adding in the oils and everything else, humans would have to eat 12 to 14 hours a day to get the calories they need. Wow. So if you're not eating 12 to 14 hours a day, what, what are you getting in your diet? Is it? as a vegan or a vegetarian. 
No, it's a really, really good point. In fact, we uh, had uh, Dr. Patrick Holford in the other day, and he, he, uh, he said to me, why do you think we have to supplement these days? I said, oh, that's because the soil's not giving back what it used to. And he said, well, that is part of the, the problem. But he said, the bigger problem is, you know, if you go back several thousand years ago, you know, people were walking more, exercising more, they never stopped moving. So they had to take on more energy. They had to take on more calories. And because they were eating more, they were just getting more good nutrition. And the fact that today we eat less because we don't move as much means we're not getting as much vitamins and vital you know, uh, uh, minerals into the body. Therefore, we have to supplement you know, uh, uh, alongside a healthy diet. Correct. No, that, that's absolutely true. Tell me a little bit uh, about, um, I, I don't sort of, I've, I'm an ex-marathon runner myself. I've actually walked the North Pole as well, as we were really? talking about that earlier. Um, tell me a little bit, though, about, I mean, I've gone the opposite way now. So I used to carb load before a marathon. Uh, I don't do lots of running now because I actually think it might be counterproductive as you get older. Um, but, you know, can somebody that still does a lot of running can they do that in a low-carb way, or is that an exception to the rule? No. So my view is, and if you read my book, Law of Running, you'll see I promoted the low-carb diet for, sorry, the low-fat diet for 33 years. And there's a whole chapter on why you should eat a high-carbohydrate diet. Ironically, that stuff, that's still valid, but it's not the truth. It, all the science is absolutely correct, but it's the way you interpret it that makes a difference. And that people don't understand that. You can have all the right science, but draw the completely the wrong conclusion <laughs> because your model of how the body works may be wrong. And the model that we had was that when you exercise, either prolonged exercise or more vigorously, you only need, you have to burn carbohydrates. And that is completely biased because all the studies that I quote in the book are done on athletes who are eating high-carbohydrate diets. And up to 1984, no one had ever studied, in the recent literature at least, people who had adapted to high-fat diets. And Steve Finney came along, and I'm sure you'll have him on your show sooner or later. And he discovered a book from the Arctic in which it was reported that people who were exposed, Europeans who went into the Arctic and ate a high-fat diet, for the first three or four days, they, they were completely, they felt terrible. They had to lie and they couldn't do any work. But after three weeks, they'd adapted and they could do all the activity that the Inuit could do. So he said, gosh, maybe it takes a few days to adapt. And he did the first study and showed that if you gave yourself long enough, and he, I think, was about three months or so, after three months, the performance of the athletes was the same, whether they ate the high fat or the high carbohydrate diet. And so he said that that, was, that, was, that indicated that we could adapt to a high-fat diet. More recently, his colleague, Jeff Ehrlich, has done did the famous study where they looked at a population who had adapted to a high-fat diet and were running ultramarathons and showed that they could burn fat at enormously high rates. So that then proved to us that you could run ultramarathons and you could run marathons on burning predominantly fat. Um, we've just published a paper showing that we, we studied people running 5K time trials, and they were good runners. They ran it by 20 minutes for their 5Ks, so they're not slow runners. It made no difference whether they had a high-carbohydrate or a high-fat diet. Performance identical. Wow. So 
which is really interesting. And I can tell you that there's a paper that I'm helping, it's being reviewed and so on. I didn't have anything to do with it, which is going to blow the, the whole story open. Because the problem is we can't, we do not have techniques to measure how much fat you're burning during high-intensity exercise. So once you get close to maximum, things change and we can't measure how much fat you're burning. But there's a group who have worked out the way to detect it. And what they're finding is that we burn much more fat during exercise than we've ever predicted. Wow. So my point is the, the default diet for every marathon runner in the world and every recreational runner is a high-fat diet. That's the default diet. You have to earn the right to burn uh, to eat a high-carbohydrate diet. If you're Elliot Kipchoge, fantastic. You earn the right to eat, to eat lots of carbohydrate. But in the population that we're talking to, which is main, mainly uh, European, North American, perhaps Asian communities, where insulin resistance is quite high in the population, if you expose that population to high-carbohydrate diets, you just promote diabetes. And you haven't mentioned it yet, but I developed diabetes by eating the high-carbohydrate diet. And I had a family history. My father died of the disease. And so my genes, high-carbohydrate diet, you can run all you like. You're going to get the diabetes. So that's the message we have to get out. Yeah, can I, can I pick that up for a second then, Tim? Because you were diagnosed with diabetes type 2, and you must have looked slender. You must have looked lean. You were running marathons at good times. You had some amazing times, as in you know, your speed for marathons. So, you, you know, you were... Uh, you are an award-winning scientist running marathons, looking slender, but still develop type 2 diabetes. Yeah, and, you know, we were able to go back on my history, and I found evidence. I found the data from some experiments we did on me when, in 1977, 1978, when I was 28 years old. And then I was exactly as you described. I was running 140 kilometers a week. I was running marathons once, three or four a year, and I was in top shape. And I think, in fact, I was close to my best performances ever, and I was very lean. And it turned out that I was so profoundly insulin resistant. My fasting insulin was 30 units. We, we take a value of six as the cutoff. It was 30 units on a high-carbohydrate diet. When we ate a high-fat diet, it still came down to 10. It was still way above normal. And on one day, we studied my insulin for the whole day on a high-carbohydrate diet. At the end of the day, I hadn't eaten for 24 hours. It was still 10 or 12. I mean, I was just a, a walking disaster waiting to develop type 2 diabetes. So if, if anyone wants a message, it's, you know, you've got to have an insulin carbohydrates and be a marathon. And I better make sure that your insulin is low, your fasting insulin is low. And then it might be safe for you to take a high insulin, a high carbohydrate diet. Tim, Tim, Tim Sergeant Trump, we just lost the signal then where you said, um, if there's one takeaway message, can you just jump back there again for me? So if there's one takeaway message from my story, it is that if you want to earn the right to earn, eat carbohydrates in a high doses during marathon running and marathon training, you must have a low fasting insulin. If your fasting insulin is even slightly elevated, you're going to harm yourself in the long term if you eat so much high-carbohydrate diets. 
Yeah, that, that's that's really, really, really good advice. So two things I think that I can take away from that and, and, and help people with is you're saying that you can be as slender as you want, but if you're really carb-loading, doing exercises, because you think that's the way you need to work to get energy, even though the science now says you can get the same results on a fat diet, um, if you are doing that, get a, a test done to see what your resting insulin rates are. Otherwise, you're on a path to disaster, really. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you go and watch the London Marathon and you watch the runners coming in after three and a half hours, the majority are not thin. You know, they're carrying five kilos, six kilos extra. And that tells me that there's slightly insulin resistance and they're eating too much carbohydrate. And my point is, again, is that you can be thin and be profoundly insulin resistant, as I was. And so being thin does not mean you can eat carbohydrates. It just means your metabolism is slightly different and you don't store as much fat as other, do, other people do who are equally insulin resistant. So as Twitter says, the fourth yes. most influential scientist on the planet. Uh, <laughs> on Twitter, the most fourth, in other words. <laughs> no, Twitter, Twitter's, Twitter's everything these days. Let's forget everything else. Um, <laughs> nothing else exists uh, for, the, for this conversation. Um, yeah. So tell us about then, so you were exercising like crazy, diagnosed with diabetes. Did you have other symptoms as well uh, around your health? And if so, what were they and have they changed since you've gone low carb? Yeah, so I definitely had symptoms, but I didn't recognize them. I would, get, I would get angry at times without any understanding of it at all. And that's the hangriness, hangry, the hangry expression. I was perpetually hungry. I was always eating. And I would try to starve, but couldn't, it didn't work. So I'd come home at night and I would just eat and eat and eat. And my wife would say, but why are you eating so much? And of course, it was bread and I was always drinking sports drinks and I couldn't run without my sports drink. And when you finished, you had to have your sports drink. My tea was loaded with sugar. So I had all, I had all the features of sugar addiction. And as I've indicated, I had those other symptoms. And then I was getting, I was putting on weight. And so I started snoring, which is really interesting. And my wife said, I can't live with you if you're going to snore. <laughs> And then I had all the other symptoms, not of insulin resistance, but of intolerance to carbohydrate, particularly uh, to cereals and grains. I had about four or five different conditions, which I now know were an allergy to, to cereals and grains. And as soon as I removed them, poof, they disappeared within, within weeks. I, I won't go through all of them, but, but I think it's important for people to know that if you've got rhinitis, your, your nose is always running. I promise you that's an allergy to cereals and grains and you need to get rid of it. I think asthma is, I also had mild asthma, also disappeared when I cut out the cereals and grains. And so those were, were two big changes. So yes, I did have symptoms, but I didn't recognize them. Only when I read Atkins's book on, his, on the diet revolution, and which he describes, you know, he, he's one of the first people to describe carbohydrate intolerance at great length which is really interesting because the scientists who describe carbohydrate intolerance or insulin resistance only really start describing it after Atkins has written his book. So he was way ahead and he described the condition without doing any studies of it. So Raven was the gentleman in California who, who described insulin resistance and, and made it a scientific topic. But Atkins had recognized the symptoms because he'd seen so many patients. He treated 
tens of thousands of patients with the condition, and he describes it absolutely there as to what happens. And, and I certainly, when I read, realized and read that, your, your, your concentration goes down, your energy goes down, you, you get more angry and hostile, and, and those are some of the key characteristics. So, so uh, that word hangry, it's real then. It's not just something that like, oh, it's a bit of a joke. It's a, a real thing, hangry. It's uh, absolutely, I can, I can honestly remember the first time it ever happened to me. And I can, I know where I was when I suddenly got angry for no reason whatsoever. Yeah. And that, that was. Is that, that the was sugar, is that the sugar crash, the insulin crash? Well, it, you're quite right. It was after breakfast, and so it could well have been. And, and I, I was always a gentle guy. I would never get angry. And then all of a sudden this happened. But now, fortunately, I'm very placid and laid back. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. Um, right. Next question. In fact, let's, let me, I'm going to change track a little bit. You just mentioned Raven in America who first, yeah. he first sort of worked out insulin resistance. If I, if I remember right, was he also the guy that then sort of – started to talk about metabolic syndrome and putting them all together? Yeah, that's correct. Ma and he was an absolute genius. And I've written a whole, I'm writing a whole series for CrossFit.com. So, and I'm looking at, and it's the title of the series is, it's the insulin resistance, comma, stupid. And I'm on part 10 at the moment, and I'm about to get back to Raven because I had to go through Atkins and Ansel Keys particularly and the irony is that Raven was on the cusp of proving that it was carbohydrate-driven. And he, in fact, he, he studied low-carbohydrate diets, but he stopped at about 40% carbohydrate, and he would never drop it lower. But even at 40%, he was finding big differences. But for some reason, and I think I know the reason, which I'll mention in a moment, he refused to study people on a low-carbohydrate diet. So he linked the metabolic syndrome to carbohydrates, but he was scared to drop the carbohydrates too low because he'd have to increase the fat intake. And he said, that'll kill you from atherosclerosis due to clogging of the arteries. And so he had a dual model of heart disease. He said there was one group who were insulin resistant and for them carbohydrates were the problem, but there was another group who got atherosclerosis because of high-fat diets and, and too much cholesterol in the blood. And he didn't see that actually the, they were very closely related, that carbohydrate was the key driver of everything. And so although he describes this incredible condition and should have got the Nobel Prize, if he had just done a couple more studies and dropped the carbs from 40 to 20 and then 20% to 10% and then to 5%, and reverse the metabolic syndrome, he would have said, here we are. I've described insulin resistance as the key driver of all these medical conditions because he did show that. He describes insulin resistance and all its diseases, not, not just heart disease, but cancer and a few, not, I don't need to talk about cancer, but hypertension particularly. And so he has this linkage. And if he'd said, right, they're all linked and here's the cure, a low carbohydrate diet, Done and dusted. Yeah. But he didn't. And why didn't he? Because he was petrified of the cardiologists at Stanford. Because yeah. they would have said, you may not tell people to eat a high-fat diet. Yeah. And if he had said so, it would have destroyed his career, just as they killed Yatkin in the United Kingdom for promoting sugar as being dangerous. If he had come out and said saturated fat is not dangerous, end of career for him. So he, 
he wisely chose not to take it further. And do you agree with all the cardiologists that I'm talking to? So a, a, a seam, uh, and then in the UK, uh, Dr. Patrick Malcolm's very big into heart research yeah. that actually saturated fat and cholesterol aren't really related to heart disease. They've got almost nothing, you know, they've almost nothing to do with it. And, yeah. and you know, I wasn't as convinced, but uh, I've got a, there is so much evidence to show that it's not cholesterol. Well, firstly, if it is cholesterol, cholesterol is a terribly poor predictor of heart attack risk. It is so pathetic. You know, the, it, it's the, I've, in this, the series I've written on insulin resistance, I look at the Mr. Fit data for cholesterol. The Mr. Fit data has cholesterol as a predictor for people between cholesterols of two and up to eight. And the change in risk between a cholesterol of two and eight is almost insignificant. And we are told that if you've got a cholesterol of eight, you're going to drop dead tomorrow. It's about 1% per annum increased risk in the people who are at the most risk. <laughs> so if they took the most unhealthy people. And if you had a cholesterol of eight or two, you were about a 1% chance. In other words, one in a hundred of these people who are already old and high would die every year. So 99% of people with this cholesterol, it meant it was of no value to predicting their heart attack risk. But if you look at the insulin resistance there, it's all, it's all in there. So yes, I absolutely agree with Asim. We have to look at insulin resistance. Yeah, and in fact, if you then, even that 1% with a higher cholesterol that it may affect, but overall mortality, the latest data says that the lower your LDL, forget heart attack, don't say, don't care about what you die of because death is death. Uh, if you look at all mortality, that actually a lower LDL might make you live longer. Yeah, and, and absolutely. So now what did the Mr. Fit data do? Because, and this is one of the graphs I did. At the lowest group, the lowest with the cholesterol between, let's say, between one and three, they, they put them all together with the next group. And they, so that they took a group who were at increased risk and they included them in a group that has slightly higher cholesterols, and so that they had a wide range. And instead of reporting all separately, they didn't. Someone yeah. came along and reported exactly the same data, but he split this group into the lower group, and they were at the highest risk. The group at low, at low cholesterol was at equal risk to those with the highest cholesterol, and they never reported it. And I, I lectured the students just yesterday, and I asked the students, these are young fourth-year medical students, I said, why do you think they did that? Why did they combine these data? Up went the hands. They were trying to hide something. <laughs> they were trying to hide that a low cholesterol is not good for you. Yeah. They understood completely what it meant. Well, good job that you're bringing through some young students that maybe one day, I've got seven children, and we need people to yeah, get the truth out there. So oh, it's yeah. good that you're bringing up some smart young children. Uh, <laughs> tell me, uh, in, in, your, in, in your book, The Real Meal Revolution, uh, you mentioned carbs do not satisfy hunger. They actually stimulate it. Uh, so, uh, so in other words, carbs... Don't stop you from feeling hungry. You, you, you eat carbs, and actually they make you feel more hungry. What, what's the thinking behind that, Tim? Well, I don't know the full biology because it's quite complex, and I'm not a neuroscientist. But from my own experience, I mean, that's what you experience, as you know. As soon as you replace your carbs with fat and protein, your appetite completely changes. And I can eat. There are certain foods I can eat. For example, if I eat pork, enough pork, I will not want to eat for 24 hours. It's not a matter of getting hungry. I just simply 
do not want to eat. And there's something in pork that is so satiating that you feel full. So <laughs> when I eat my pork, I've got to get it in quickly because within half an hour, I feel absolutely satiated and I won't want to eat for, for 12 to 24 hours. And so you, you wouldn't, people don't understand it. Yeah. So again, the students, I asked them yesterday, I said, what's the key symptom in, in obesity? The key symptom. All obese people have one symptom and it's hunger. That's it. And I said, therefore, you have to sort out their hunger to correct them. And it doesn't matter what else you do. Get the glucose down or get them to lose weight. Not going to work until you treat the hunger. And that's, that's clearly the case. And, you know, I was, one lady interviewed and me. Course, and, of course, hunger is a hormone. Therefore, it's a hormonal problem. Yeah, absolutely. And it's being driven by all this feedback from yeah. the body. And it's, I, was, I was chatting to a lady who lost 60 kilograms, and, and she told me that she had – when she was fat, she woke up in the morning hungry and she, the only thing that drove her the whole day was hunger. And it was always there. It was incessant. And I think if you ask fat people, that's what they'll tell you. That's their key driver is hunger. And the tragedy is you can reverse it so quickly by just cutting the carbs and controlling the, the sugar addiction. That's a great answer. Thank you very much. Um, now, we all know, and I've talked to many scientists and doctors over the last year about Ansel Keys and where it all went wrong and fake research, wrong research, wrong hypotheses, people married to their hypotheses. Um, tell me, uh, in, in your recent book, you talked about the uh, Pure study where the data was released in 2017, where they followed uh, the food uh, uh, being eaten by 135,000 people uh, that sounds like a big study. Tell us about the, the results of, of that yeah, one. So let me just get back to Ansel Keys. So if you really want to, I'm the first, I mean, a lot of people have written about Ansel Keys. Gary Taubes did, Nina Teicholt did. They did a brilliant job. What I decided to do was to spend two months looking into Ansel Keys. And I read everything he'd ever written. And I gave the whole story in four columns in the CrossFit.com series. And I uncovered the following. And in, 1940, in the 1940s, he did this amazing study with these military recruits who didn't, they were conscientious objectors. And as Gary Taub said, he proved that if you starve people, they become psychotic. And these poor military people all got psychosis. And he calls that the starvation psychosis. So he describes that. Keyes describes that. The war ends, and all of a sudden, he's at a loose end. He got, doesn't know what he's going to do. He's got no qualifications. He's, he's not a medical doctor. He's a physiologist. And in 1948, the National Institute of Health is started in North America, and they target specifically heart disease. So all of a sudden, there's all this money coming into heart disease research. And Keyes writes in 1950 that diet has nothing to do with heart disease, nothing oh. to do with heart disease, okay? And you, if you change the diet and we all become vegetarians, it'll make no difference. He writes that. Did not know that. I, so then, and in 1950, a chap called John Goffman, and I think I've got one, this is his book. I just happened to have it by chance next to my, and it wasn't meant to be here, but John Goffman, what do we know about heart attacks? 
<laughs> John Goffman is the first guy to centrifuge blood. He takes blood samples and he ultra-centrifuges it, and he describes HDL, LDL, VLDL, chylomicrons. In 1950, he's already worked out that people with heart disease had slightly different patterns than other people. And if you eat a high-fat diet, those patterns get worse. And if you eat a high-carbohydrate diet, they get better. And so he comes up with a diet-heart hypothesis. He says high-fat diets cause cholesterol, the, the fraction that he calls cholesterol to rise. And if you, if you change your diet and take out the fat, it goes down. So in 1980, sorry, in 1950, John Goffman has described the diet heart and the, the lipid hypotheses. So poor old Keys is sitting there with no qualifications, no special, not a doctor, no training in blood testing, not a chemist. What's he going to do? And he gets a brainwave. He says, I'm going to become an epidemiologist because I don't need any training. And <laughs> he finds a document from the World Health Organization which plots on two separate graphs. The one is the, the fat intake in the country and the heart disease rates. And the other one is the protein intake and the heart disease rates. And the protein intake and heart disease rates are almost a straight line. But he sort of, well, we just ignore that little naughty little one there. We won't talk about animal protein. And then he looks at this high fat one and the 22 points and they, they're all over the place. And he says, oh, but if I just choose these six, it'll be a nice straight line. So he chooses the six and that's it. He then becomes the premier cardiac researcher in the world by, by manipulating that data. By the way, he comes to Cape Town where I am and he does one of his, the very first studies he publishes is done in Cape Town. I didn't know that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. so, so anyway, he looks at three different populations, three different racial groups in Cape Town. And the one has a high fat intake and they're the white people like myself and they have high disease mortality. The, the third group is a black community, much less fat intake, lower heart disease rates. So he says, there you are, simple. It's obviously that's the high fat diet. So he then, he then becomes very influential and influences the American Heart Association. There becomes a cabal of them. And, and Nina talks about this at length. There's five people. They become the cabal. And they drive all the research and all the findings over the next, well, the next 70 years because we're still living according to that. So the pure study, so then, and the big study was the seven-country study. So, 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 so Ansel Keys, I didn't realize that, wasn't even a doctor. No. Wasn't even his idea. He had read a book on it idea. and thought, oh, oh, I need to do some work. I'll use that book to say, I agree with that. Now, let me try and find a way of proving it. And although there were 20-something countries where there was data available, he just selected the seven countries that met that hypothesis. And for the last seven years, we've all been told to eat low saturated fats, not much saturated fat, lots of carbohydrates, simply because of some yeah, incorrect research. Yeah, so, that, so the original work, so then he does want to do a prospective study and he gets a, does a seven country study, which is, which in, with the key point, and this is what Nina pointed out, was that they looked at 3% of the diet. 3% of the people had their diet study. 
And also he'd selected the countries anyway because he knew which countries were more likely to give him the direct result. Now, the Pure study, which is so good because it's, I'm just checking quickly to get my facts right. As you said, 125,000 people from 18 different countries and they measured their food intake on every single one of those 125,000 people. Can you believe it? Amazing. This is not 3% of a small population. Yeah. I have a couple of thousand, maybe 10 or 12,000, I think. Here yeah. they've got 125,000 uh, food intakes. And there they show, as, uh, we must be clear that it, it's not a massive effect, but it's clear that the more carbohydrate eaten in the countries, the higher their mortalities and higher their rates of heart disease, which is the opposite to the seven countries study. Yeah. And, and so that, so the pure study now does show that eating a, a higher fat diet is not what's causing the problem. It's eating more carbohydrates. Again, it is an associational study. It cannot prove causation, but if you're going to use keys data to argue that, that fat is bad for you, you've got to look at the pure study and say, actually, this is the best study and this shows the opposite. So we can't listen to keys anymore. If he was around today, his data would be irrelevant. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, isn't it? We're, we're, what our government's advice in Great Britain and in America is still based off Ansel Key's research that was you know, on a smaller base, we now know was just completely wrong. And yet that's still, we're still listening to really outdated research when there was research done with 125,000 people across multiple countries that says completely the opposite. Hopefully at some stage in the future, before my own children get too old, we will get things changed. You know, it's well, really what's going to happen, and I, I read that's happening in the United Kingdom, is that the cost of diabetes is going to destroy everything. And we know that we can reverse diabetes by simple. It costs nothing. It yeah. costs absolutely nothing to reverse diabetes. Yeah, so I mean, that, that's the reality. You're right, Tim. And my viewers, listeners will be bored to death of me saying my dad last year was diagnosed with diabetes type 2, which he was, but was given all the wrong advice, which was just cut down on everything. Nobody's mentioned the word carbohydrates to my dad yet. And, and, and yet, when I said to my dad the other day, well, what do you think it used to be called? Well, it's always been called diabetes. I said, no, it used to be called sugar diabetes. diabetes you have a problem dealing with sugar. He said, I don't have a lot of sugar. I went, yes, but carbohydrates oh. is sugar. So it, it is, and we've just got to get that word out of there. We've yeah. just got to get the word out. I need, I need to remind you that my dad died of the disease. Yeah. And again, you don't die of the disease. You are killed by the treatment. That's what kills you. Yeah. And what was his, was his treatment, inject more insulin? You know, he came along, he had it in the, between 1980 and 1992 where there was very little testing. We weren't testing blood glucose. They were just testing urine glucose. And I don't, he was given medication but not insulin. But he was told to eat a high-carbohydrate diet and to snack six times a day. And that was, it. That was what, what killed him eventually. I'm oh, sorry to hear that. Sorry yeah. to hear that. And, and you know, what it does tell you is you just got to watch someone die from diabetes. It's, it's a terrible death, and people don't understand that. And, and it's such a sh tragedy, isn't it, because a small change in diet, well, maybe a large change in diet, um, and, and the problem you know, can go away, and we've got so my, much. My dad, my dad would have followed that with the greatest of ease. He loved meat and 
he loved, uh, he could easily have cut out all the carbs. It would have been no trouble to him at all. Somebody said to me the other day, it's all right you saying all this, Steve, but it's more expensive. And I, I, I went home and I thought, I went home and I thought about that. And actually, it's not more expensive because when you're a carb-burning machine, a sugar-burning machine, you're always hungry, so you're always snacking. And yeah. it's snacks that are expensive. And it's, you keep going into the McDonald's and we have one in the UK called Greg's and we have another and Subway. And, you go, and you're constantly eating and eating, whereas if you're you know, meat-eating and, and, and eggs and, and, and good vegetables and, and things that really fill you up, you might only eat once or twice a day. So actually, yes, the food itself is more expensive for sure, especially if it's organic. But overall, once you convert, it's probably cheaper. Exactly. So what we realized being in South Africa and living with a lot of people who, who struggle to make ends meet, we decided we're going to try to develop a diet that is affordable by the majority of South Africans. And we have a diet for one pound, about one pound fifty. One pound fifty. Wow. Equivalent thirty rand. Yeah, so, and that's enough for to keep people full and to start reversing their diabetes. So anyone who tells us that the diet's expensive, that's nonsense. You can give a very effective diet for relatively little. And what sort of food, what sort of food types are you putting in there? Okay, then we begin with eggs. Eggs are the cheapest and healthiest food, as you know. And then we go to pilchards and sardines, which in South Africa are cheap. Uh, they're canned, and it's you know not you, it's great to eat. They've but eating every day might be a bit boring. But then offal, and the Af that that's another big area. And m many South Africans ate a lot of offal in the past, but now it's considered not to be acceptable. You have to go and buy your food at the supermarkets. Well, and the great thing in Great Britain, Tim, is that because my generation and younger have forgotten how to prepare offal. It is so cheap. I can yeah. make a homemade patty uh, out of chicken livers at just like pence per serving because, you know, it's so much cheaper than chicken breasts and everything. And that's where all the goodness is. Uh, and I can make it so cheap because people forgot how to make, you know, how to use it, how to have it on toast or patties. Or... Yeah, no, exactly. And then we teach, we teach the people to work together and so that they can buy communally and that helps. And also to go to the expensive supermarkets in the white communities and ask for the, for the fat that they cut off the beef. Yeah. And to use that as a replacement for, for, for butter and, and for cooking oils. And so you can, there are lots of things that can be done. But they, the reality is they do it. And what's so exciting is that their health starts to improve dramatically. Yeah. And so for, for just by changing their food intake, they start reversing all these diseases and and it's so exciting. Is it, uh, as, a, as a professor right now, um, um, and as a doctor, and you meet people, I guess there's more hope today than there was 20 years ago. I certainly spoke to uh, Dr. David Unwin a few months ago, and he said, Steve, I got so depressed as a doctor 20, 30 years ago because giving all this advice, and no matter what advice I was giving, people were getting fatter, getting sicker, and he said, today, now we understand what's driving insulin resistance. Now we understand what's driving diabetes. There's a whole new world of hope because we can help so many more people and we're helping them without drugs. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I was really happy when I went to the low carb conference in Britain last year. Exactly. I had two or three young doctors came up and said, thank you for giving us hope. Exactly. He said, let's change everything. 
And in my lecture, when I spoke, talk, talk to the students, I show them that the model, the current model, med, medical model doesn't work. These diseases are nutritionally based. All the chronic diseases that I am aware of, or majority of them, are all nutritionally based, and you can't give medications. You've got to change the diet. And the beauty is you start helping people. And, I, you know, I think the next area is going to be cancer because I'm not suggesting cancer is purely nutritionally based, but I've read enough now to know that there are many things you can do if you have cancer. You still need some of the traditional treatments, but much reduced. What happens in cancer is that the treatment is so barbaric that it's likely to kill more people than it helps. But if you just reduce the dose of those killing treatments and use a whole bunch of other stuff, and look at nutrition particularly, and the, the low-carb diet is central for, for almost all cancers, but there's a whole lot of other things that you need to do. We can start doing something about cancer in just the same way that we're doing something about diabetes now. Yeah, I think cancer is a complicated one, isn't it? Because there are definitely, I've done a lot of research about remote communities in the world where you know, even places where there are 20,000 people in villages, as long as they're remote and not westernized at all and still relying on their local diets, there is still zero cancer. That's right. Uh, so we could say it's all food, but I guess it, I think it's a mainly, I think you're right, mainly a diet, but maybe we've also got some toxins that we're getting and some, you know, maybe too much mobile phone use a little bit. And there's yeah. other, but it's definitely, it's definitely, it's definitely caused by modern society for sure. Yeah. So I've just read a book called How to Starve Cancer, which is written by an English lady who reversed her stage four cervical cancer. Wow. And she just went into the literature and she said, okay, he has people using statins. Sorry, even statins. Not, not, I never promote statins. But some, there's some evidence that statins have an effect in certain people. Aspirin has an effect. Metformin, which I take, and berberin has an effect. And there's a whole bunch of other things that at low doses can amplify the effects of the standard treatments. So I think that's going to be another exciting area. But unfortunately, just like diabetes, which is controlled by the insulin manufacturers, so oncology is controlled by the people selling the, the, the toxic medications. And so yeah. they're not about to change, but, but we'll force them to change sooner or later. <laughs> Good on you. Tim, I want to just read out something. Um, so you were... Uh, bear, bear with me on this. So um, you were at uh, an international low-carb summit in February 2015. Some amazing speakers uh, were, were there. Um, and you came up with a, cons a consensus statement, which what I believe that means is something that you all agreed on as, as speakers. Uh, and and we, weren't, we weren't paid to have a consensus either. No one was paying us. <laughs> so, yeah, this was. This we weren't selling anything either. weren't selling anything. No funding from Big Pharma. No funding from, from the big food companies. And let me reach everybody that's watching and listening the consensus that doctors and top scientists like Tim came up with. They said the mainstream dietary advice that we are currently giving to the world has simply not worked. Instead, it is the opinion of the speakers at this summit that this incorrect nutritional advice is the immediate cause of the global obesity and diabetes epidemic. This advice has failed because it completely ignores the history of why and how human nutrition has developed 
over the past three million years. Most importantly, it refuses to acknowledge the presence of insulin resistance, in brackets, carbohydrate intolerance, as the single most prevalent biological state in modern humans. I mean, it's, it's you've, you've, you've all got it there. So it's probably the best 100 words I've ever seen written down. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm trying to remember who wrote it. I think I had quite a lot of inputs, but uh, yeah, yeah, we... Well, you, clo- you closed the uh, ceremony from what I, I... I wasn't there, sadly, but you, you apparently yeah. closed it, and uh, it's got more... I'm, I'm, I was telling you the story of how it came about, that conference. So I, I was influenced to study medicine by Professor Christian Barnard, who did the first human heart transplant in Cape Town. One, I was in America. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And I decided, well, that sounded like a good idea. Let me become a research scientist in medicine. And interestingly, the first human heart transplant was done on a patient with end-stage heart failure because of diabetes. So let's not forget that. And the second patient in Cape Town also had end-stage diabetes. So diabetes was the cause of the arterial disease causing them to need the transplant. Anyway, Chris Barnard was an utter genius, but... Unfortunately, he didn't have a good coach to look after him. He didn't have a Klopp or a Guardiola to look after him. <laughs> and he was naughty. And so he, he went astray. Had he been on a football team, they would have said, listen, Chris Barnard, you are the top goal scorer on our team, but you're a member of the team and the things you have to do to be a member of this team. And you can't go and do these things because they're going to detract from you being a great goal scorer. We want you to do this, and if you don't do it, we will transfer you to another team. They didn't tell him that. And unfortunately, in the end, people got so jealous of him that they stopped referring patients to him. The media picked up on it and targeted him and his family. And his granddaughter is a lady called Corin Thompson. And she was the favored granddaughter of Chris Barnard. And she saw what had happened to the family because of the media interest in them. And she said she realized I was having not the same magnitude of the problem, of course. Mine was tiny. She said, but you're being targeted by the media, and I don't want you to suffer what my family suffered. And she then wrote to 15 or so of these low-carb people and said, would you come to Cape Town to defend Tim Noakes? Because my trial was about to start in a few months' time. And they all said, yes, we'll come for nothing. We didn't pay any of them. They all came gave their time for free, and it was just amazing. So that's how that started. And my trial then started a few months later. Not that the low-carb conference influenced the trial or was influenced eating behaviors in South Africa yet, but it was, it was amazing. And to meet all those fantastic people, yeah. you know, low-carb people, we're just a team, and we're all mavericks because <laughs> we've stood up <laughs> I must tell you the final story because... Well, yeah, uh, you have to, Mavericks, because you're up against literally the corporate world of a big food corporation and, and big drug, drug corporations. And yeah, you have to be a little bit maverick. And, you know, right. I, I said to a scene the other day, what's it feel like? He said, you have to have the broadest shoulders because as soon as you start getting close to the truth, they just shut you up. And yeah, Dr. Okay. Martin Kendrick in the UK, who's written three books, a great, yeah, great... Not the world. He's disappeared off Wikipedia and he doesn't know how. He's just disappeared off Wikipedia. So they are powerful. So well done for keep fighting. So I must tell you my, my lovely story. So when I, this is to show why we're a unified group. So when, 
when I came to England to speak at the Low Carb Conference uh, last year, I was introduced by Peter Bruckner, who I hope you'll also have on the program. And Peter had converted to the Modiet. He was the doctor for the, the Liverpool football team, but also for the Australian cricket team, which I never knew how does an Australian look after <laughs> Liverpool. But anyway, so he introduced me. And my parents are from Liverpool. So at the end of my talk, I decided, okay, we're going to have something about Liverpool. And I played You'll Never Walk Alone. <laughs> that was my close, and then I closed, and then I played it. And at the end of my talk, you could hear the sound coming through, and everyone picked it up, and then they all stood up, and they started clapping, and then we all sang. And people <laughs> were crying. The tears were coming out because we'd all walked alone, and uh, we understood what the, the symbolism of the song was. It was... That was one of the most magic moments in my entire career, I can tell you. Oh, Tim, wonderful moment. I wish I was there. Now, I have two final questions that I ask every doctor, every professor. First one is, people need to know the truth about how to be healthier, happier for longer. What is Professor Tim Noakes' top three or four or five tips? Okay, firstly is attitude. And now the attitude I tell students is, your goal in life from a medical point of view is you are going to die in your bed at night without ever having taken chronic medication. That's the goal. So every day you wake up, you must say, okay, what am I going to do today that's going to make sure that I'm going to die in my sleep at the age of 70 or 80 or 90 or whatever? So that's the point because I, I get so frustrated when I deal with people. I say, oh, I'll well, just go to the doctor. He'll give me a pill and I'll sort this problem out. It's not going to happen. The only way you can look after your own health is to, you've got to look after it. And number one, two, and three is nutrition. If you don't get your nutrition right, you can forget everything else. So that's, and it has to be low carbs. And the more insulin resistant you are, the lower the carbs have to be. Now, I'm on chronic medication. I take berberine and I take metformin. But those are two really healthy drugs. And I mean, there's some evidence that they might act on many other conditions as well. So I'm, I break the rule, but, but those are the only two drugs I think that, that you might be able to, to use. Point one. Point two is you better stay married. <laughs> Not that. Maybe I shouldn't make it number two. Maybe, maybe I should. Let's, let's come to marriage later. I'm just very fortunate. I've been married for 48 years well, and my wife. Have a good relationship. And if yeah. you can't have a good relationship with a partner, get close to friends. It's about being intimate, isn't it? It's about yeah. sharing, having a reason to get up and, and, and things like that. Right. So being socially interactive. And, yeah. and, but the third one is exercise. And as I, I came, as you did, as a marathon runner, and I've also realized that, that once you get over 70 as I am, it becomes more important to look after your total body. And for me, that means I've got to do weight training and I've got to do explosive gym work. And I do that with CrossFit. And I found that the CrossFit training is just suits me beautifully. I, Tim, you I broke, the, Tim, Tim, you broke up just a little bit there again. So let's just get, jump back in on that one from exercise because you just broke up in the middle. Sure. So start with your numbers. So I, having, having run all these marathons, I've, done, I've earned my keep for running. And I realized once I turned 70 that, in fact, I needed to look after my whole body. And upper body strength was important, posture is important. And I realized I needed to build up muscle strength in the upper body. And I decided to go to CrossFit gyms. And I found that they're absolutely brilliant. 
and because it's explosive, highly explosive activity as well, which you also need. And I need that 20 minutes a, a week or 20 or 40 minutes a week where we go really high intensity. That's great. And, uh, so that's the, that's the other point. And then we've got all the other social things. So let me just recap to make sure I've got it right. The first one you said was try and avoid manufactured drugs, toxic drugs where you can to, to eventually die in your sleep. And by the way, you're going to get to 100. I don't know why you said 70, 80, 90. You're on your way to 100. I hope so. Uh, for all of us. Uh, so attitude, an attitude of look after yourself because medication won't look after you. Is that, is that the best way of summarizing? That, that's absolutely correct. You, you cannot allow the medical profession to take control of your health. Brilliant. Number one. They will manipulate it and they will use it to earn income from you and that you can't yeah. allow that to happen. Brilliant. Got it. So uh, your own attitude to try and avoid toxic drugs, medication, uh, nutrition, nutrition, intimate relationships, hopefully with a partner, but friends and your own family and, and, and those around you to have the sense of purpose and then exercise, which may be running when you're a bit younger, but as you get older, take care of the total body, which means just keeping your strength, maybe walking more, getting outdoors, but certainly a bit of high intensity interval training. Yeah, yeah correct. And whereas in the old days, I used to think you had to do half an hour, an hour a day. I don't think that's necessary anymore. Yeah. I think half an hour a day is fine, but you have to have the exposure to explosive activity yeah. two or three times a week. I'm 100% with you. I was overweight virtually my entire adult life, running four times a week in the morning, uh, but eating the wrong things and unhealthy in so many different ways. I was technically obese. I was over 30% body weight, done loads of marathons, loads of adventures, learn about low carb. I now exercise at most three times a week and at most half an hour. And I'm the weight I want to be because you can't outrun a bad diet. Or as your good friend Asim said the other day, you can't out-exercise your fork. And then the final one, Tim, which we ask everybody is uh, a little thing about what, what would the legacy that you would want to leave behind? Yeah, um, well, obviously, I'd like to be one of the people who is remembered for converting the world to, to a low-carbohydrate diet. I mean, there's a legacy of people who've done it, but I'd like to be remembered as one of them who made a contribution in some way and that I was a, that I was a decent person and that, yeah, I try to help other people. That I think those are things that are important to me. Well, Tim, I think because... Well, not one reason, but many reasons, but certainly that standing up and fighting and defending your corner. You know, I think you've mentioned it in your books and you kind of mentioned it earlier that you could have made that a much shorter trial and just got off the hook, but you wanted to expand it and keep it going to get the low carb diet off the hook as well. And I think if you hadn't have done that, big pharma, big food corporates would have be probably still poisoning us for the next 20, 30 years. So uh, I think you've got a great legacy. It's been an absolute blast and pleasure talking to you. I'm sure our viewers and, and people watching on, on YouTube love the hour. So again, thank you very much, Tim. My pleasure, Steve. It's been one of the best interviews I've ever had in my whole life. So That's thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Very, very kind, mate. We'll see you soon. If you enjoyed the podcast and would also like to watch it online, you can find a webcam version on YouTube or the Primal Living website, www.primalliving.com.
the Fat and Furious podcast is the perfect introduction to helping you and those you love live happier and healthier for longer. And if you are a fan of the series, then please let your friends and family know. They'll truly thank you for it, and so will we. Until next time, live life naturally.